welcome back to the show. Of course, my name's Darcy, and with me as always is Jason. How's it going, buddy? Not too bad in the land of the frozen chosen. Yeah, and snow is expected up there, so good times. Yeah, it's almost like a little bit of winter. Yeah, I, I don't honestly think we can complain too much with this winter. It's been pretty mild uh, up until now, really. At least in Calgary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, same here. We've probably melted more snow than it's fallen, so... You know, if we get a few days where it hits down to the minus two zero number, it won't be that big a deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's when it gets to the minus three zero. That's when I start to go, yeah, it's too cold. <laughs> yeah. Minus, minus yeah, 20. When your nose is freezing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, exactly. Unless you get Just a enough wind. to get a little bit of frosty in the beard hairs. <laughs> well, the wind's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it depends. I got to I get to travel next week or this week, so it's going to be it's going to be fun to see how the roads are. Yeah, you're the traveling man. Yeah, it's always the challenge this time of year. It's uh December through to March is probably my least favorite time to do my job. So cuz I'm getting older and I don't like the cold and I don't like the snow as much. That's just me getting grumpy as I get older. Who does? Yeah. See, I want to be one of those old as guys. We age, aren't we? Yeah, I want to be the grumpy old man when I get as I get older. Yeah, we're supposed to be old to sit around the fire and tell stories to little kids. Yeah, exactly. We're not supposed to actually do any work. So, if we can get some youth to sign up on Patreon, then yeah. then that would really help out. It'd really help this old guy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I suppose we should get into actual topics here. Uh, not much going on in the world today. It seems like, yeah, it's pretty quiet other than, uh, you know, violence everywhere and hate and, you know, vitriol and you name it. And certain, um, wannabe Métis professors are, you know, doing their damnedest on Twitter these days, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the RCMP setting up a temporary detachment on the Wet'suwet'en land. Uh, and they're proud to say that the hereditary chiefs are working with them. So, I don't know if you got a chance to read much about that, Jason, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm, I follow them, the camp, on uh, Twitter. And, uh, you know, again, it's, you, you look at what the RCMP are putting out, and you look at what, what the First Nation is putting out, and uh, it's two totally different spins on uh, what's going on. And the, the hard part is, is that it sure seems like Anytime you get colonial settler institutions involved, and especially an arm that's militarized like the RCMP that come on to traditional territory, boy, they'd like to talk like they're still doing what's best for us poor, you know, Indians, because we couldn't find our ass with two hands. Absolutely. I mean, that's what it, this screams to me is, uh, you know, I... <laughs> As, as soon as I read this, I, I just instantly flash back to that picture of the the heap, like the huge pile of, of uh, buffalo skulls when they were just eradicating the, the bu- buffalo on the prairies. And uh, it just, it strikes me as there's odd similarities between when they were starving out Indigenous people or giving them smallpox and doing these things. And then suddenly the Indigenous were like, well, I guess we better comply, otherwise we're, it, we die. And, and then so, well, see, but we're working together. And that's what this says to me is we showed up with an entire military division of the RCMP with guns and cannons and grenades and, 
and armored vehicles. For you, you people with your drums and feathers and peacefulness and prayers. And oh, it's so nice that you guys are willing to work with us. <laughs> and it, it just, I don't know, it strikes me as, yeah, and, as the same policies as 100 years ago. Yeah, and the, and the rhetoric is still the same, is that, uh, you know, well, it's only enforcing the rule of law, and this is what the court says, and, you yeah. know, so the RCMP really maintain this position of enforcing justice and standing on the right of, uh, you know, on the side of right, according to the legal system. And it, you see that in a lot of the social media that comes out from that bent on the colonial side of things is really that one-sided conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder, did they really need the RCMP special response team to come out with their full, you know, assault rifles and sniper rifles and dogs and armored vehicles to, to deal with these peaceful people? Um, I mean, we've seen that kind of shit going on at Standing Rock a couple of years ago there. Uh so, you know, is it really necessary to show that kind of force? Um, other than you're just trying to show your force, you know? Well, I think too, though, you got to remember, like a lot of uh, institutions and even uh, companies, they use civilian populations, they use the unarmed as the test group for these things. And True. how often does the military actually get to put that hardware I mean the RCMP, not the military. The <laughs> RCMP put their military hardware into actual real-world practice. You know yeah, what I mean? absolutely. Especially, especially, though, like you said, in a situation where there isn't a lot of threat. So they're not actually going to have to pull the trigger on somebody. Yeah. So, But it's a chance to, for everyone to get dressed up. It's a chance to show force, roll this hardware down the road, you know, strap it on your, your holster, and uh, give it a good field test, as it were in a non-threatening situation. And so we've seen this over and over again where the government likes to use the RCMP this way and the RCMP takes full advantage of the opportunity to field test its armaments against, you know, an unarmed population. Absolutely. I mean, it really is, uh, you know, a way for them to justify a whole lot of equipment, a whole lot of manpower or human power, a whole lot of overtime, a whole lot of expenses and costs, um, so, it, you know, from the RCMP standpoint, this is actually a huge windfall as far as being a cash cow because they get to get paid a lot more money. Um, every single officer is going to get a lot more, you know, on top of what they normally make. Uh, plus, like you said, they get to roll this stuff out and make a big show and get all the pictures in the press of all their heavy equipment that they just absolutely needed for these peaceful people. Um, but I think too, it, it, it also helps remind people that the RCMP can roll into your town too. So, you know, don't, don't mess with the RCMP. We mean business. And so it's a bit of an intimidation to keep regular folks in line, I think a little bit. Well, it really shows you that while the ability to protest in opposition, um, to the government, may be something that is in law, in effect, it really isn't. You can protest from the sidelines as whatever is the rule of law is taking place. So it, it really shows the real intent of the government when it comes to the enforcing of all laws. It doesn't really matter who or where that, that that's going to happen. 
So you're free to protest as long as you do it from the sidelines, not in, not in the way where it actually would impede something or actually make a difference. Absolutely. And I mean, this whole thing is, is just, it's, it's just genocide continued. And I mean, it, it has all of the landmarks of, you know, what the Canadian government did a hundred years ago to, to indigenous when they, you know, when books like, you know, um, you know, when they were clearing out the plains to try to make way for the settlers and, you know, they, they've done this since, you know, Canada's inception and it just continues today. Uh, the thing I think that's, um, and, and well, I think, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that. No, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> I, I, what I was going to say is I think that um, for me what's interesting about this is they're establishing, you know, a, 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 they say it, it's, it's a temporary detachment on Wet'suwet'en land. Um, now, how, how this can't be viewed as a, as a complete invasion of sovereign territory because the, even the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that they have exclusive rights to that land, not Canada. And here we are, Canada has militaristically and by force and violence uh, set up and established a military post essentially on this uh, foreigner la- foreign land, which by all definitions would be an invasion. And so, you know, we've talked, you've talked about that before about how, you know, well, once you've defend or once you defend that land in conflict or once you take it over by force, it's yours. And I, I just have to wonder, is that what we're going to see now 20 years from now is the Canadian government is going to go, well, yeah, but we have an RCMP detachment there, so now it's Canadian. Yeah, and it will be really interesting to see once the, I mean, they're really going to enforce the pipeline through no matter what. So what happens after the pipeline goes through? You know, and yeah. I think this is the real conversation going forward is, so once this is over, what's to stop the next project? What's to stop the next incursion into the territory? Um, of First Nations, you know, when they don't want it there, because they're they're setting the precedent now that as long as the Canadian court and its own system can pass the law, the RCMP is willing to enforce it. And so, really, how can there be a nation-to-nation relationship, or how can the, the Crown, on one hand, acknowledge, you know, the this isn't ceded territory, and then turn around and say, yeah, but we're going to militarily through the RCMP force our way through? Absolutely. You know, where, and, where does that respect come in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you look at when they walk around to other First Nations and they're going around and saying, no, we want to have a nation-to-nation relationship. We want you to be, you know, have self-governance and we're willing to work with you on that. But yet, when it comes, when it really comes down to it, they're not. And I think that's what this shows me is that no matter what they say with every other First Nation out there is a total lie. All they want is control of that land. Um, and that's what you see here. I, you know, we there, it was, it's been made very clear online throughout the last week that uh, overall First Nation land acu- accounts for less than the size of Vancouver Island or, you know, 0.2% of the land of Canada. And yet it just seems like these pipelines cannot ever go around a First Nation reserve. It can never go around First Nations land. Um, it's always got to go right through their community and the government forces it through there. And, and, you know, I think for me, uh, I mean, uh, that to me is the biggest travesty of this whole thing is that not only is this pipeline going through, but now there's going to be, have to be, uh, continued access by energy companies into that territory 
because they need to service that pipeline now and whatever other facilities they put along that pipeline. Um, so now it's it's forever. Canada has access to their territory forever. And that's that's a really sad thing. Yeah, and I think it hits upon what you said, though, is there is no ability of the crown to acknowledge something that's equal to itself. So how can there be nation to nation? The yeah. The whole point is to make all Indigenous communities, all First Nations, subservient to the crown. Yes. And we see that in a lot of the policies coming forward. You know, they're basically the white paper 2.0. And, and this is really, I think, the very stark, real, and uh, eye-opening, you know, truth of what is uh, the relationship between Canada and First Nations, you know, in the year 2019. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, it speaks huge volumes to when you hear, you know, Métis organizations like the cartel talking about uh, having a nation-to-nation relationship with the Crown or with, with the Canadian government. There is no nation-to-nation. And this is, it's so clearly evident when it comes to situations like this. And this is perhaps the best example that we could have ever, ever had in this land because our own Canadian court system has ruled they have that sovereignty on their territory. Nowhere else in Canada are you likely to get that kind of a ruling. <laughs> and so so it, if, if this doesn't set the example for all Indigenous to look and say, these guys have absolutely no interest in a nation-to-nation, we better start coming up with a new game plan here. Um, I, I don't know what else would, would do it. I don't know what else would wake people up to that. Well, and, and I don't know why any other organization from here on out would want to pursue that conversation with the government. Yeah. Um, how can you, in good faith, be negotiating with the federal government on this nation-to-nation framework when you know right well that uh, there is no such thing in their mindset when they're willing to do this, like you said, with a, with a First Nation that has proven uh, in court, in the Canadian court system, their claim. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think about the Métis organizations and, you know, they're all talking about getting land and, and working and negotiating with governments to, to get land and, to, and things like that. But ultimately, what, what are you going to accomplish with that at this point? Um, it's going to be Canadian-controlled land. It's going to be, you're going to be told what you can and can't do on that land. If there needs to be a pipeline put through there, guess what? It's going through there. Um, so these aren't going to be sovereign lands. We already have that in this example where there is sovereign land and the Canadian government went, yeah, we don't care. It's it's attached to us, so we're just going to go in and take it over. Well, as if, so then to think they're going to give you sovereign land out of land that they already have claimed for the last 150 years, I, I just don't know where where the, you know, where the thought process is in that for, for these so-called leaders of these Métis organizations. Well, I think as far as the cartel goes and land, the whole land issue for the cartel goes, it is solely the part of the payout plan that I think the Manitoba Métis Federation is uh, hoping for, of which I think as far as Métis people go, I think most have so bought into the colonial system and its colonial governments that Métis people would probably be quite happy with um, the whole model of what do you call it, like township you know, municipal type mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, government. Yeah. Yeah. The municipality. Yeah. And I think they would be quite content with that. They'd be quite happy to have the municipality of Maintenance, uh, 
I mean, you know, but still under the federal framework, because most people, I think, yeah, given the context of the conversations that go on, we see on, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, that's where they're at. Yeah. I, I don't think most people, when they talk, may, you know, many people talk about nation to nation, the idea of an independent, sovereign country of our own um, enters pe- most people's minds. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. Um, so one of the other things with this too, is that I read that I, I just, I laughed cause I'm, uh, not a big fan of, of police investigating themselves for wrongdoing, but, uh, that seems to happen every time. Uh, but the RCMP have come out and said that they will be investigating themselves and their actions on Wet'suwet'en and territory to determine if they did anything wrong. And I'm just, I like, I, honestly, I can't help but laugh. Like, w- is there a, like, I had to check and see if it wasn't the Beaverton or something or, uh, you know, cause I just thought that was hilarious. They're going to investigate themselves. What are the chances they're going to find wrongdoing? Yeah, that's, and that really is the whole sad scope of this is not only do they have a chance to, to test out their military hardware, they have a chance to build the government for all that hardware. Then they're going to sit down and now have an inquiry to see if they somehow misstepped in their, you know, enforcing the rule of law. Yeah. And build the government some more money. Yeah. For well, that inquiry. So, I mean, at what point is the RCMP not financially coming out ahead at this game? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. If you, if you really want, if they really want to do this right, you know, they'd, they'd convene a, a panel of, of impartial uh, former police, um, which would probably consist of mainly their friends and family, they were used to be on the fort on some police force in Canada and, you know, they'll have to get paid and then we'll have to have travel budgets and then, you know, and, and all sorts of stuff just to make sure that we do a good and thorough investigation on ourselves to find no wrongdoing. Um, but yeah, it's just a financial windfall for the RCMP. Absolutely. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, of course, they're not going to find any misconduct. They're not going to find anywhere they went wrong because they're falling inside the boundaries of the rule of law. And so, you know, they only showed up there in that military hardware because that's the protocols the RCMP were given in how to deal with a protest when First Nations people are involved. So, of course, they followed their protocols. They've dotted all their I's. They've crossed their T's. This is no, you know, I would be gobsmacked and need, need to sit down if they actually come out of this with saying, oh, yeah, well, we did this or that wrong. Oh, absolutely. You know, some of the things that people have observed about the RCMP behavior while they're there is, um, I, I noticed one person was talking about how they've kind of, they've set up these exclusionary zones um, in the guise of our, of officer safety, like RCMP safety and, and staging of RCMP, you know, activities. And, and it's just conveniently around everybody's homes and cabins and so there's some people that can't even get back to their cabin to like get back to their home, even though the court order does not allow for that. The RCMP have done that because obviously they need to be safe. That's really the most important thing here. Um, but they're also using firewood that was cut by an indigenous people. They're using the cabins that are that the indigenous built. They're using you know they're using resources that the First Nations that were there brought out of the woods and out of out off the land for themselves and the RCMP are using that, but I'm sure they're not doing anything wrong, right? Well, how could they be doing anything wrong? They've only been doing that for 150 years. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 
And if anybody's interested in the history of the RCMP and they don't know that, uh, I'm pretty sure yeah, if you if you look up what the RCMP has done, uh, they've pretty much were invented to quell the indigenous people um, through force. So I mean, this is this is the whole point of the RCMP, really, in effect. And so you know, it's not a surprise they're going to make a big show of it when it comes to indigenous people. They they always have, and they and they've always done an excellent job at controlling the PR. They've always been able to shift the blame off of themselves and onto some other circumstance. You know, if it's not whiskey traders, then it's the rule of law. So, yep. you know, there's there's a reason that the RCMP are still in existence, that they're venerated in settler society, is because as an institution, they've done a very good job at being able to demonize another opponent. You know, oh no, it's not about First Nations, it's about whiskey traders. It's not about First Nations, it's about what the rule of law is, you know, what's right and what's just. You know, absolutely. And so that's the real challenge. Yeah, for sure. And, and I just, I, I, I listen to some people talking about this who, you know, on the non-indigenous side, and they, for people to not see what's wrong with this is is amazing to me. But I, I think it speaks volumes to, I guess the the propaganda that the RCMP do put out. They do a really good job of controlling the message that gets out, um, especially in this case where they've shut down communications and cell phone communications they've shut down uh you know media from being able to get in there because officer safety you know we have to have these exclusion zones and and so they have a lot they've they've kind of abused a lot of their powers in order to really control that message and and they've done a really good job because they they're doing a you know they're there's not a lot of negativity reaching the non-indigenous of canada about this situation well, absolutely. I mean, really, the, what news sources are you going to follow to find out what's really going on? And the the big challenge, too, is is this isn't an incident in isolation either. But how would you know the history of the RCMP if it didn't mean something to you personally? You're just going to go with whatever, you know, that coloring book in fifth grade showed you about the RCMP. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. That uh, was, it was the RCMP that brought justice to the West, you know, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> there, you're not going to, most people are never going to read a book to figure out the history of Canada. Yep. They're not going to do anything more than watch a 30 second news clip on the national um, to find out what was going on. Yeah. And so then personal narrative you see on social media uh, to Joe Settler response joe canadian's response to what's going on in this community you know again shows you how far we still have to go in working together as you know first nations communities metis people and our you know the settlers that live here absolutely and it kind of talks to a, a thing that i've i've come to believe wholeheartedly in the last little while is um I, I think the governments at all levels do a very, very fantastic job of passively encouraging uh, racism. And so really, you know, all this talk is, oh, well, it's about the rule of law and it's about the rule of law. But then when, when non-Indigenous do see something on social media or something where, you know, Indigenous have got the word out, it just looks like, to them, it just sounds like, well, I've heard 50 people say it's about rule of law, so I don't know why these guys are being so rowdy and rioting and rebelling against the rule of law. But but that's not really what's happening here. And 
that story isn't being told by the people that need to be telling it. And it's just, it's just a passive way for them to encourage racism, but then be able to say, well, we're not racist ourselves. We didn't actually say anything, right? And uh, I, I see it all the time with government, and I just I find that this particular situation is huge with that. But it's like you said, it's systemic. We we see a government that's positioned for 150 years is be able to tell a false narrative of the history of Canada. Yeah. And so when you grow up as a a person or a recent immigrant, and you're told this, you know, myopic revisionist history of how Canada came to be and was forged off the back of these great settlers, um, with no real mention of the dispossession, you know, famine, starving, slaughtering of the buffalo, any of these things. Um, and, you know, then what do we expect then to come of people sitting down watching that 30-second news clip to really think? Absolutely. You know, yeah. is it any wonder that we can't get true reconciliation, a real conversation going, because we're so far apart about the true history of this country and what people are being educated to in the government system. So it's passive, but it is aggressive. You know, it, it's system. It's systematically set up to make sure that that fairy tale narrative of Canadian history stays intact, even for new immigrants. For sure, who come here. They're not any better informed about First Nations issues nope. because they're told the same story. Absolutely. And I think that's, the, and, and then from there, it just flows to every level of government. It throws, flows through to every Joe Canadian. And that's what they see on the news. Yes. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, again, this is being framed as like, oh, these guys are anti-pipeline and they're just, they hate the oil industry and stuff. And it's like, that's not really what, that is what this is about, but this is only the flashpoint of what it is about. And it's about the fact that these people are trying to exert sovereignty over their land as we as Canadians have said, you have the right to do that um, through the Supreme Court of Canada. And so to me, this isn't even really about a pipeline. It's about the, the pipeline is the, is kind of the, you know, it's the flashpoint. But this is more about the sovereignty. And that's something you don't see in any of the mainstream media news. This is anti-pipeline, pro-pipeline. That's all this story is. The, you know, Indigenous hate pipelines and energy industry and you know, and, you know, hate people having jobs. That's what Indigenous hate. You know, they want to see us all suffer. And that's kind of the story you see played out in the media, and that's really not what this is about. This is about sovereignty. It's about consent. It's about uh, Canada actually living up and stepping up to a nation-to-nation relationship. And I, there's huge fails on all of those things. <laughs> so it, it's too bad. But that's that's the message that's heading out there. Absolutely. But it, it, it would be lost. You know, we have, you know, people wouldn't understand why we've so mistold the context of Canada Yeah, that people wouldn't understand why the federal government would have to negotiate with First Nations communities. Yes. What do you mean they have the, the veto right to say no to, to the federal government? How does that work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think most people are, are poorly educated and they're poorly educated and that's on purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I think it, you know, again, it plays into the government's like, um, passive yet aggressive, um, of, of creating this divide amongst people by saying, you know, if these guys have sovereignty over their land, well, then why can't I have sovereignty? I own a farm and it's been in my family for four generations. 
why can't I claim sovereignty over that? And and so it creates that divide again. Um, and I think that, you know, again, this works to the government's advantage. It creates chaos. It distracts from the real bullshittery that's going on. And it keeps it keeps the hate going. And it keeps the problem continuing so that a whole bunch of people in government have jobs and the RCMP can justify having all these toys they have. And we can justify every you know, a couple of years going out and, and using that force against indigenous people. Cause they're obviously they just hate Canada. Right. Well, and I think even on the bigger picture, it makes it so that the narrative can't change because the last thing the government really wants is for what we hope for as indigenous people is that Canadians would wake up to the true, our true cause. And that is self-determination yeah. or the settlers to get back in their lane as it were, you know, what the wampum is all about. And I think that's what they're trying desperately not to have happen. They don't want Joe Canada to wake up to the true history of, of Canadians and be sympathetic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's why they got to be painted a certain way. They got to be painted as anti-job, anti-pipeline, anti-energy industry. Um, and, and you know, they've, they've, they've got to be painted into that corner. Otherwise, people would, would actually empathize with them, possibly. And so we can't have that, like you said. So it's a, it's a shitty situation, and I wish that people would look beyond the, the pro or anti-pipeline debate on this and look to what the real issues here are. Um, and again, going back to the, the whole fact that the RCMP are setting up this detachment and they're so proud that they're working with the hereditary chiefs, you know, I mean, again, I can't help but stress that if somebody walked into your house and put a gun to your head you would probably be more likely to comply with what they want too. Like if they said, hey, I want you to cook me dinner or I'll shoot you. Chances are you're going to cook them dinner and they're going to go, hey, look, you're working together with me. That's great. Isn't that awesome? Well, we have such a good relationship now. And that that is that is not at all. You know, I mean, that's just not acceptable. And, and to say that these guys are working together, it's, it's just an insult all around. Yeah, except for the RCMP. They're not insulted at all. No, them and, and the Canadian government they, and the they actually they're yeah, all, yeah they, they actually believe that life is good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's it's uh sad. We'll keep watching what's happening out there and uh but I just I find the rhetoric from the RCMP and the government and stuff is a little bit a little bit hard to chew at times. Um but let's talk about we got a couple other things here, but let's move into um, some Métis Nation of uh, Saskatchewan news. And so the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan is requiring all members uh, to fully reapply for membership with all their records. And th- those records are going to go back to Manitoba now. They're going to go back to the MMF for verification and then sent back out to the Métis Nation members in Saskatchewan. Um, so what it is is if you... If you got your card prior to 2009, you have to completely fully reapply. All your genealogy, all your paperwork, I'm assuming you got to pay the fee again and wait another six, eight months, a year to get your card, your new card. And then anybody after 2009 has to go into their office and update their picture. So, um, but this is because of that big settlement that's coming through and they, you know, they even said, uh, where was it? With They said, with the millions of dollars in benefits and assistance potentially available, 
it was in everyone's interest to be properly registered to prove they are indeed Métis. So I, what did you think of that, Jay? Well, you know, I, I don't usually toot my own horn, but it kind of made me feel like a prophet because I'm pretty <laughs> sure we covered that exact same topic on a previous episode. I think we did. Where we talked. We, we talked at how the, the the Manitoba Métis Federation would eventually consolidate and become the go-to de facto organization. And right now, it's like we talked about, I mean, we called it, look back on our episodes, that we said that given the, the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan's disheveled schmas of administration, it would only be a matter of time until the Fed, Manitoba guy stepped in and took that show over. And uh, whoop, there it is. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I don't even think you'd have to go back that far. I think, honestly, you'd have to go back to maybe maybe October, November of last year, 2018, in order to find those episodes where we talked about that. But uh, it, it is something that we completely predicted, so it's not really a big surprise. Um, what I find hilarious in this is that, okay, if you got your card in 2008, it's been a whole 10 years, well, I guess technically we're into the 11th year. So let's say 11 years... Um, and now you have to reapply completely with all of your genealogy, all your paperwork, all the forms, all the birth certificates, just because they want to make sure you're Métis, as though they didn't do that before. Like, it, it just fascinates me how their registry is, like, ever-evolving. Well, part of it is, I, th- I think, in all honesty, I'm not sure what happened when the, the Métis Nation in Saskatchewan totally, you know, Im- imploded whatever <laughs> happened to the actual paperwork there true like where is where is that originally a registry that they were supposed to have true and so i think it's just a very clever ploy to to validate the a new registry to rebulk up if you were all that paperwork because they simply don't have it or it's inaccurate and this is an easy way to shift responsibility away from the metis government back to the metis people to do that for them. Absolutely. And I think part of this too, I mean, maybe I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but I think I'll, I think honestly, part of this is they know how much money or, or and stuff is going to be coming in. So it's kind of like the fewer people access that money, the better it is for those of us in quote unquote leadership positions. And so it wouldn't amaze me that if, if you said Saskatchewan had, I don't know, 15,000 members. Is all Are all 15,000 going to reapply? Or are some of them going to go, you know what, screw it, I don't care. I don't even want to do it. It's not worth my time and effort and money. So then out of that 15,000, maybe only 10,000 apply. Well, now you've, re- you've reduced that amount of Métis, which we've also talked about a lot in the past on, on past episodes, talking about how the government is happy to work with the cartel to reduce the, their fiduciary duty to Métis. And so every time they, they force people to renew their cards and reapply, there's going to be a bunch of people that don't reapply or don't hear about it. And so it's just amazing to me that people don't see that. And I, I maybe I'm really, really conspiracy-led, but I, I just see that as a huge reason for doing this. Well, we know that all government-funded uh, Indigenous organizations are reductive by nature. Um, how long has the AFN been in there lobbying the government and has yet to be able to you know, get them to repeal the sexism in the Indian Act with any kind of adequacy? 
Yeah, so truly really lobbying the government, you know, for simple, something that simple is very difficult. Never mind the, the MNC's continued reductive nature. I'm just curious, um, after hearing this, will this give the Métis people in Saskatchewan the impetus to really do something for themselves, to become more autonomous, you know, yeah. to really, you know, maybe there'll be a backlash. And, um, and maybe you're against, right. Yeah. Against this kind of conglomeration of power. Well, and, and I, I, to be honest, I, I kind of hope so. I kind of hope people start to wake up and realize that, you know, if you got to reapply completely every, you know, handful of years, then these organizations clearly are not doing their job. Because um, the one thing an organization should be able to do is run membership. I mean, if you can't run membership, how are you going to run multi-million dollar programs and services aimed at making people's lives better? Um, and it's no different than, for me, it's, you know, you look at any politician who's wanting to run for prime minister or premier or whatever, mayor, and you look at them and you say, well, they can't even, like, organize their own party, so to speak. What, how do you think they're going to do with a province um, or, or country? And it's the same thing here where if your, your whole thing is centered around your registry, and if you can't do that right, well, then what are you doing right? And so I, I hope that people start asking that question. One of the things that I saw with this uh, is their their continued uh, rhetoric, speaking of that uh, earlier with the RCMP, is the continued hammering of the rhetoric that they're doing this because people in other parts of Canada are claiming to be, be Métis, and so they got to make sure their members re-register and are, are Métis and they don't have any fakers in their group, um, which I thought was pretty thin, uh, you know, pretty thin thin ice on that one, but uh, that's what they said. But it goes good for the propaganda machine. You know, we have all these fakers in Alberta, you know, trying to uh, usurp all these mass benefits for mating nation citizens. Yeah. You know, I know that uh, where are you in Calgary? That there's, you know, those 16,000 people down there really uh, trying to get in there and shoehorn the Métis Nation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I just see that totally in the voter turnout and everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so that's, you know, it's it's so funny to see them talking about that while they, you know, are continuing to, to put out that rhetoric to try to convince people that their blue blob map is the map. And, uh, and it's being played out well because, you know, on Twitter and, and on social media, the, um, how shall I say, the, the professors who are not Métis who like to claim they know everything about being Métis are really, really being active right now on trying to dispel and discredit everybody they can. And the truth is, is I don't know, I think your organizations that, that you're working for kind of do that on their own. And, uh, but it, it has built up this fury again and there's a, there's a storm of this shit going on again, which is, is really too bad, but it, it bleeds into their purpose, right? Yeah. And that's the whole point is on one hand, you create fear of infringers, of usurpers, you know, people who would fake or try to steal your identity. And so it really creates a very us and them mentality. And that's what they want so that it's easy to, you know, continue to consolidate. And now really um, it will be interesting to see as far as Saskatchewan's concerned, how long, if their registry is no longer in their own hands, but it's under Manitoba, how long is it just going to be before the entire 
you know, um, government of Saskatchewan really just folds in with the government of Manitoba. Yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me if they did something where uh, Saskatchewan became part of Manitoba, the MMF, and you know, the people that were, say, president of the MNS became a, you know, what they like to call a minister of, I don't know, Saskatchewan affairs or some stupid thing. And they, the people in leadership will, will for sure keep their jobs with a different title, but still get paid. Um, and now they'll have a new responsibility within that that bigger government of the MMF. Um, and then it begs the question of how long is Alberta got? Well, I can tell... Well... I mean, let's face facts. I can totally see the reality there. The MNC is so colonial. Let's face facts. If we if we were going to be placing bets ten years down the road, I have no problems believing that the cartel will will make it so that uh, Red River is the capital of the the Blue Blob map, <laughs> and uh, like Ottawa is the capital of Canada. Yes, and you will see regional people all laid out across this Blue Blob map. You know, whether you're from, you know, Saskatchewan or, or Alberta or the Northwest Territories, you'll just be the, you know, minister or the Métis MP for that area. And, you know, on your way to, uh, you know, New Ottawa, New Red River, capital city, where central government is. Absolutely. And I just want to point out, this might be one of those uh, prophet, prophetic moments that Jason has. So... Uh, we're going to mark this episode, and then in a few years, we'll see what happens and go, come back to it. And just, just saying, you, you might have your prophet hat on yeah, tonight. The crystal ball moment. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Or I was just standing too close to the smudge bowl. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but yeah, it's. I don't think it's like I said. I don't think it's really surprising. I I don't think. Uh, anybody's really shocked too much about this. I just, I find their, their reasoning to be hilarious about trying to draw the, the correlation between, you know, them, them damn Easterners trying to claim to be Métis uh, or anybody outside the blue blob map now. Um, they're, they're just really pounding away at that rhetoric. And I, I think it's a pretty thin, thin uh, claim, but uh, you know, they're still making it. I think it's on one hand, it's funny. And on the other hand, it's just kind of sad. Well, I think like we talked about in, in the last couple episodes, uh, given where Métis politics are going, the recognition of Métis communities outside of the Métis Nation Blue Blob map, this is a rhetoric now that I think they have to be careful in their vocabulary. Um, there Are there people in Quebec who are not Métis Nation people, for sure? Yes. Are there people in Ontario who are not Métis Nation people, for sure? There are people in Alberta who are not Métis Nation people. But quite clearly, that doesn't mean you're not Métis. Absolutely. Um, the, when it comes to that, it doesn't matter what professor you are. It doesn't matter what book you've written. The reality is the people who have all the guns, and last time I checked and how we started this conversation, who make and enforce <laughs> the laws, agree with Darcy and I, and that's the fact that Métis people exist all over Canada. And there are rights-bearing Métis communities that have no historic connection to Red River. That is a fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, uh, you know, it just keeps playing into, you know, everything we talked about beforehand, about how uh, this is going to change the, the so-called identity battle. And 
things will heat up before they get better, and I think we're seeing that now. The rhetoric online is becoming much more heated and 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 vitriolic again, and very very active. And uh, but as we predicted before, as as certain people get their books published and they've done their publicity for that, I really do think this is going to start to die off. Um, simply because as we move forward and as other organizations outside of the cartel start to move forward and people even within the cartel start to see the ridiculousness of of those organizations and start to move away from them, I think you're going to very much see a, a dismantling of that rhetoric and a, and a hopefully a move away from it. But um, that's, you know, again, predicting and, and we did that last year. So hopefully that comes true. Just looking ahead to the next year. That's all that's going to happen. By the end of 2019, I think we'll be having a lot of different conversations and there'll be a fairly good shift. Yes, I hope so. Um, so now we had a couple other little things. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, here in Alberta. There, there was an article that came out about the Alberta doctors who are mostly exempt from the mandatory Indigenous cultural training that the rest of Alberta healthcare workers must undergo because the doctors are considered contractors. And because of that, because they are not employees of Alberta Healthcare, they have no requirement to do this training. And I want to point out, first of all, that they call it uh, cultural sensitivity training. And I hate that term, so I'm going to call it Indigenous cultural training. Because um, you don't need to be sensitive to Indigenous people. You need to understand Indigenous people. So I think that's a, for me, that's an important point to make. Um, but I don't know. I I think it's kind of ridiculous. What do you think, Jay? Well, I think it's actually, one, I think it's a good teaching moment for the fact that most people don't understand how the medical community works. The fact that doctors do not directly work for the uh, government, that they are in fact contractors and are free to bill the government, operate their practice as a business, use the loopholes as a business. And that's why their collective has been able to garner such amazing, you know, pretty good wages from the government for what they do is because they are truly are uh, independent contractors in so much as that's legally how it is. Now, if Darcy and I were running a business and we had the same relationship with an employer that a doctor has with AHS, <laughs> that would be illegal. But Hey, you're a doctor. Um, the <laughs> fact that we have a huge frontline part of our medical community that could exempt, be exempt from providing adequate services and understanding the historic context of such a large portion of our population is troubling. Um, we don't allow teachers and out. We don't allow lots of other medical professionals and out from understanding the historical context for First Nation Indigenous people coming into the medical system. And given the atrocities that have happened in the medical community uh, in regards to services provided to Indigenous people in this country, I simply find it distasteful, to put it politely, that they would be willing and it would be their own want to not be taking this um, training. Absolutely. And, and I mean... Let's face facts. Yes, if if nurses or or other professionals or other people in within the healthcare field have that underlying racism or have that underlying um, lack of understanding of of history and you know uh, things like that with Indigenous people, 
that is very, very uh, detrimental. So it's great that they're getting this training, whether how much of it they're, they're absorbing is questionable, but it's good that they're at least getting it. But the truth is, is we're talking about the people that truly make the decisions for your healthcare. So if you have somebody who who doesn't understand Indigenous history, who doesn't understand the history between Canada and Indigenous people, who doesn't like Indigenous people, has his own their own bias, and there's nothing being done, I mean, that is the ultimate authority in, in your healthcare. And it just screams to me that it's a very dangerous, dangerous uh, person to not have any understanding of Indigenous needs, Indigenous culture, Indigenous beliefs, um, I mean, that's the most dangerous person, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and what's startling is, is they didn't voluntarily embrace the opportunity. So an opportunity was made available to the doctors to participate in this training, to participate in understanding, to increase their knowledge and awareness of, of Indigenous issues uh, and, and some of the things that Indigenous people face. And instead, they went and made sure that they got exempted from it. That's what's really startling to me. Yes, because uh, to point out, the the government here in Alberta did uh, approach, because what they're, I guess what they're really ruled by is the College of Physicians here in Alberta. And the Alberta government did approach the College of Physicians, or whatever it's called, I think that's what it's called, um, to, to implement this training. And the College of Physicians simply said, well, we'll consider it. And moved on. And so right there, there's that, there's that arrogance of, because their belief is, is that their doctors have to uh, work to a certain professional level anyway. So why do they need it? And I think that's a really sad attitude to have. Um, but that is the attitude. And I, I don't know if, you know, Alberta is unique in that. I, I'm not sure how other provinces healthcare works, but I would venture to say that it's probably very similar. Um, and you'd probably get the very similar reaction if you approached their doctors to get this training in all other provinces. So it's just a very sad, sad representation of exactly how far apart we still are when it comes to, you know, quote-unquote reconciliation. Oh, I, I guess my one point I wanted to make about the doctors was just to reiterate to people how uh, government promises tend to work. So to put this into perspective, this uh, training was a promise made by the NDP government when they got elected, and they technically have followed through, but as you can see, it, it really isn't completely following through to the betterment of Indigenous people. It's sort of sort of, kind of following through. And so I guess I just wanted to tell this story to point out to people that, you know, those promises of hundreds of millions of dollars and stuff... Eh, just be very wary. Again, we'll reiterate that point, and I think this is a good example of that. So I don't know if, if you had any more thoughts on this doctor situation. Well, only I think that it goes to show that it doesn't really matter what the government promises in a lot of respects. Because when it comes to First Nations, Indigenous, Métis people working inside the colonial framework that we are, the government itself has restrictions. There are things it can and cannot do. And I think this is a great example of saying, you know, we're going to make this mandatory, but yet not really having the wherewithal to fulfill its own promises. And so I think First Nations and, you know, Métis people need to be very wary when the government talks to us about what it is willing to do and not willing to do, because a lot of it is really hollow words that they can't follow through on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, 
I think the last thing that I want to kind of touch on tonight is uh, the big old cabinet shuffle here. It's expected to be the last cabinet shuffle, obviously, before the, the next federal election. So we have Jean Philpott, who has moved out of, I don't even know what they're called anymore, INAC, CERNA, uh, and off to some role in finance. Uh, Seamus O'Regan, who's totally useless in my opinion, moving from Veterans Affairs, uh, again, where he was completely useless and insulted veterans, to take over for Jane Philpott. Uh, and then we also see Jody Wilson-Raybould moving out of her role as Justice Minister and taking over Veterans Affairs. So uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts about these these big uh, cabinet shuffle moves, Jay? Well, I mean, let's be honest. How long do we really have until the next election? You know, we're yeah, we're staring down the barrel now of the run-up when we're going to see a lot of the publicity come out and a lot of the rhetoric come out before, you know, the election itself is called. Yeah. But the, the reality is, what did it really do? The people who were in these portfolios really didn't achieve any great success. Métis people didn't, I don't think, uh, in the justice portfolio, did we get any justice? <laughs> was there anything that really went Indigenous ways? Yeah. You know, was there any laws passed or amendments that really, you know, struck a chord in how, you know, Indigenous people in this country are going to, you know, participate in the legal system? Yeah. You know, I don't think so. And so what did she accomplish while she was there? I don't know. I guess, I guess nothing really got screwed up. Yeah. Any worse than it already is. So, yeah. Kudos to her. Well, um, People can call it a demotion. They can call it whatever they want. It's a cabinet shuffle. This is nothing more than, I think, political restructuring. You know, I'm no fan of uh, Captain Doughboy getting in there as, you know, in, involved in this at all. I think he's useless. And like you said, but what's really going to come of it anyway in the next few months? Absolutely. And that's what I, when I look at these cabinet moves, I'm like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't like Seamus O'Regan. I didn't like him when he was Veterans Affairs Minister. Uh, I'm definitely not going to like him in when he's in INAC or whatever the department's called now. Uh, but the truth is, is most of the work has been done that's going to get done before the next election. So really, even if you look at, so let's say Jane Philpott did make a lot of strong moves to bring, um, you know, hers was the, the services division of, of INAC. So it was the, the drinking water and things like that. So maybe she did make big gains in that. I, I, I don't know if we may can say huge gains, but maybe she sit, made gains. But a lot of the stuff that she did now has to play out over the next year. So by by putting a guy like Seamus O'Regan in there who's you know kind of been useless in every position he's been in, and then to say, yeah, just smile pretty for the cameras and look good, while meanwhile the work has already been in, put in place, whatever is going to get done in the next year and a half. It's already in place. So he can literally just ride this out. And, you know, Veterans Affairs, I think what they want to do there is they want to throw somebody in there and maybe make a, a last-ditch, real strong effort to show veterans how much they love them uh, right before the election. So I think that's... I think Jody Wilson-Raybould is a strong minister who you throw her in that role and it, it, it might make a good show right before the election, which is... Typically, all people remember is the last, you know, six months or three months before the election. So that's how I see these things. That's how I see them playing out anyway. Well, I think you're not far off the mark. I think that's the reality is the budget's been set when you're talking about clean water 
drinking water in communities. That budget's been set. They have had their protocols. The bureaucrats are clearly in charge in that portfolio to run the clock out on what they can and can't do before it all dies on the uh, the cutting room floor when the election's called. And I think you're you're absolutely hit the nail on the head. We'll see probably a fair bit of promises, budget increases, and wonderful things coming to our seniors in the, in the veterans department. Um, whether that actually pans out or not after the election will be rain to be seen. But I think uh, you you are right in putting a strong minister there who can smile and uh, say that with a straight face before the election. Absolutely, and I, I think at this point from here on, I think we have to look at pretty much. Every move that the government makes, which is not any different than any other government, I'm not picking on liberals here, but truly the any move from here on in to the next election is an election move. Everything is about winning the next election, and even this cabinet shuffle, I see it as absolutely 100% nothing more than they have it in their head that if they position themselves this way, it's going to help them in a certain way, and they have a game plan, and that's what this is. So make no mistakes, this is all about winning an election and has nothing to do with actually providing quality services from either Veterans Affairs or INAC or or even the new uh, Justice Minister. I it's just not it's not about that, it's about winning an election. So let's not let's not kid ourselves, right? Good spin. It's all about the good spin. That's right. It seems to be the running theme in tonight's episode was all the rhetoric, all the spin, you know, the RCMP, the <laughs> The MNS, the the government of Canada. I mean, Jesus, we need to, we need spin doctors like these guys, man. Yeah, uh, where's where's our budget, Brian? I tell you, we could spin some pretty good shit if our budget was as good as theirs. <laughs> yeah, no shit, eh? So, um, if you like having independent Métis media and you think it's important to you or any and everybody you know, um, or you want to hear more stories from around this land and or perhaps more stories from elders. Head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up for as little as five bucks per month. Uh, and you will be part of this show expanding its content, publishing more episodes, and bringing you new perspectives, which we would absolutely 100% love to do. Um, I would love to be able to bring you know stories from across this country, across this land uh, of Métis people and Métis history and Métis communities, everything. So, But we need your help on Patreon to do that. So it'd be really appreciated. And uh, I don't know if you have any last words before we uh, close out the show, Jay? Any no, last? I do thank the, the Patreons we do have who uh, take time to support us. Absolutely. Uh, for those who take the comment, comments on our YouTube channel and, and watch our videos and you know who listen to our show, we appreciate everyone's support. And uh, appreciate everybody sharing what we do do and uh, helping us grow our listenership. Absolutely. So I, I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's show. Um, until next week, for both Jason and I, uh, until then, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. I don't have a fire that doesn't burn.